New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thank you for listening in. We are partway through our Book of Acts series. We are studying the nature of the early church and what does it mean for us. We, we hope that this message equips you, it blesses you, and it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Y'all doing well? Good. Voice feels good. Thank you for the prayers. I appreciate that, guys. Um, my name is Bronson. If you're new to our community, new to our church, uh, I'm one of the pastors and one of the leaders here, and I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I'm grateful to be here with you guys, and uh, we, we've been journeying together as a community uh, through the book of Acts, and uh, we've just been looking at the nature of the early church. Who was the early church? What did they do? And if God did it in them and through them, what does it mean for us as Jesus followers in 2022? And so we've been going through it. Th this week we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Now I want to say this before we, we jump too far into it. The heart of New Life Church has always been this. It's always been that people would come in, they would find hope in Jesus, they'd feel comfortable bringing their friends and family in, and that they would find a home here at church. We always say we don't want you to find a seat to sit in, but we want you to find a community and a people to belong in. Amen? And I'm just kind of looking around the room. I know so many stories and so many battles and so many things that God's brought you guys through. And, and here's what I want to encourage you. People need to hear your story. I don't know who needs to hear that, uh, but people need to hear your story. People need to hear what God's done in you because if, if they can see God's done it in you, they can believe God can do it for them. Amen? And so we always say, we, we always wanted to feel a little bit like a family reunion. You know, you go to a family reunion, it's, it's, it's noisy, it's loud, it's a little rowdy. People are playing spades. Praise God. If you think you're good at spades, I'd love to play you. Okay. That, that is a challenge. That is a challenge. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's the heartbeat of, of our community. And so we're glad you're here. I, I want to give you kind of an overview look, a uh, summary of what, what we've been saying about the book of Acts, and that's this. The message of the book of Acts is that God has filled his people. Now, who are God's people? The church, us, with his Holy Spirit, and have sent us out as his ambassadors to every corner of the earth to spread whose message? His message of his kingdom for the redemption and renewal of a world that he so desperately loves. Our goal is to live this out, to live into this, and to carry this message of hope. Amen? August 23rd, 1973, Jan Eric Olson went into a bank in Normanstrong Square in Stockholm, Sweden, and he took four hostages. He demanded roughly $3 million in currency and the release of his prison cellmate, and he commenced a six-day standoff with the police. Olson shot two officers and four hostages were kept captive in the bank for six days. After the release, the authorities found that the hostages had developed strong emotional bonds towards their captors. And they even refused to separate from them. The hostages reported that their captors treated them kindly and did not hurt them. They defended their captors and refused to testify in court against them. After this, criminologist and psychologist Niels Bergerot investigated and investigated and named this phenomenon. Does anybody know what he named it? Stockholm Syndrome. That's right. 
This is a condition that occurs when hostages develop an emotional or psychological connection to the ones who held them in captivity. Now let's look at some of these symptoms. Positive feelings towards the captor. Support of the captor's behavior and the reasoning behind it. The victim begins to believe they share the same goals and values as their captors. They make little to no effort to escape, and they believe in the goodness of their captors. They have an unwillingness to engage in any behaviors that could assist in their release, and they have negative feelings towards their friends, family members, and authorities who try to rescue them. Does this sound at all familiar? Have you ever been in a place in life where you were fighting for something you knew was bad for you, but you loved it? Like maybe a bad relationship or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you knew that girl or boy was poison, but you loved it, right? So you stayed in the relationship. Everyone told you to run, but you didn't. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's food, okay? For me, it's something called Skyline Chili. Does anybody know about the Lord's Chili? Anyone? Skyline Chili, I see that hand. Anybody else? Skyline? You know, I could have eaten a full meal, but if we pass, you know, this this has actually happened. This is not hypothetical. I have eaten a full meal, gotten on the road, on the way out of Columbus, coming back down to Arkansas, passed a Skyline Chili, and reasoned, built my case, and defended it to Callie why we needed to stop at Skyline. I'll get six chili cheese conies the extreme way, right? And I will, I will smash them, all right? I will have a stomachache the whole way home, all right? And in my mind, I, I, I do this in a way where it's like, you know, it makes sense. And my mind is logical in the moment. Like, I have to do this. There's no other way I could do it. Consider this. The Bible describes sin as holding people captive. Something that's destructive, but strangely, we as humans fall in love with it. And we all do it. We defend it. We fight for it. We fall in love with it. And we can even at extremes be willing to lose family members and friends to stay in it. Proverbs 5.22 says, An evil man is held, what? Captive by his sins. There are ropes that catch him and hold him. Now, Stockholm Syndrome only sets in with about 8% of hostage cases. And there's even a debate about the original case. But here's what I want to extrapolate out. In our text today, we're going to see. We're going to see a group of people who run when they're set free from the bonds of sin. And then we're going to see people who double down and fight to keep their sin and to stay in captivity. What we're going to see is reoccurring themes this morning that we've looked at before. We're going to see effective evangelism. We're going to see radical conversion and cultural opposition, right? So we're going to see evangelism, we're going to see conversion, and we're going to see opposition. But what we're going to do today is we're going to try to mine down a little bit deeper, and we're going to look at the battle underneath the battle, okay? Are you all with me? Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Um, We're in verses 18 through 41. 
We're, I'm, I'm going to read out of the uh, New International Version. If you want a Bible, we've got some in the back. Uh, I've got a few team members. If you just want to raise your hand, if you want a paper Bible, they'll bring you one. Um, and I want to give you this thesis as you guys turn to it. The good news of Jesus sets us free from our captors, connects us to the true source of life, and graciously disrupts the lies and unrealities of our world. My sermon title this morning is The Riot. And so at this point, if, if you're able, let's stand to our feet uh, all across the room for the reading of God's Word. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia. Thank you, guys. Bless y'all. Um, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Aratus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia for a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in particularly the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Artis Aristocrats, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. 
as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's powerful and it's effective and got it straight from you. God, we recognize you as the creator. We thank you for sending Jesus as the redeemer. And Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. We just say, come Holy Spirit. Work among us, work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. Come on, all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Okay. Who, who, where are my true crime junkies at? Come on. True crime, podcasters, all right. Uh, who, who loves like a good whodunit, all right, like movies, those, those sorts of things? Documentary people? Any of my, okay, yes. My, th these are the Lord's people. Uh, th this is good. Uh, the, the amount of serial killer shows and crime shows and unsolved mysteries, who, who remembers that? That's the OG, okay, unsolved mysteries, who grew up watching that? Uh, Y'all, we love them. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is why do we love them, all right? Is it because we're nosy and we just like knowing the gory details of things? That's some of it. But I think that there's something deeper. I think the reason we love it is because what these shows or these podcasts, these movies are trying to do is they're trying to uncover something, right? They're trying to prove something. They're trying to show us what is true. Or maybe the podcaster's going on a journey. They're searching for the truth. They're trying to figure out they have a hunch this person's innocent. So they're looking through all the evidence. They're going through all the things, and they're asking this question, what is truth? Yo, know, this is an important question that each of us as human beings have to ask. What is truth? What's the source of truth? Another way to say it, one of my favorite authors says it this way, is what is reality? That's what we're trying to uncover, right? We're trying to discover what happened, what actually happened. What's the reality of the situation? What's the truth of the situation? What's real, right? Or in the inverse, what's fake? What's a lie? Or what's unreality, okay? So what's happening in our text today is we have people who've been shown reality in Jesus, and we see that their friends are set free, and then there's another group of people who have seen this stuff happening, and they've rejected Jesus, and they've doubled down, and they're fighting for their idols, their captors. Let's enter in. The Temple of Artemis was the largest building in the Greek world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was 25 feet, or sorry, it was 425 feet by 225 feet, which is roughly 50% larger than a collegiate football field. This was an enormous building in the ancient world. In the temple was the shrine of Artemis, which was here at Ephesus. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was significant in the cult of Artemis was among the largest in the Greco-Roman world. This cult is a significant part of the culture, 
the people, the life of Ephesus, and y'all, listen, even the economy. And here, in this significant city, here's what we see. Paul has made an enormous impact. Just imagine that. He comes in, he's arguing for two years. It actually says that he sets up shop, he rents a space. If you go in and you dig into it, he was teaching from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. daily, okay? Five hours a day, this guy was reasoning with people, he was preaching the gospel, he was doing all this stuff, and the impact he has is incredible. John Stott says this about him. He says, Paul's vision, his vision had no limits. No Alexander, no Caesar, no other hero approaches the large-mindedness of this little Benjamite. Don't you love that? The gospel impact is so great that it poses a legitimate threat to the goddess that all of Asia and all of the known world, the Roman Empire, worshipped. Here's what I want us to see, okay? The battle that Paul wages is not a political one with Rome, but with a worldview that takes people captive into empty idolatry. This is not a battle with arms. This is a battle of ideas. It's not with weapons of war, but with the ultimate weapon, the weapon of truth. So we have to ask again, what is truth, right? This is an important question all of us have to ask. For the longest time, I would say Jesus is truth, right? He's the ultimate reality. You find the fullness of life in him. And I agree with that. But one of the best definitions I've seen is truth is reality, okay? So if truth is reality, a lie is unreality, right? Let's look at what John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies. He says, the best definition I know of truth is reality or that which corresponds to reality. It's easy to get lost in the metaphysical weeds, but for our non-technical purposes, truth is what we can rely on as real. Are y'all tracking? The chair I'm sitting in is reality. The air I'm breathing is reality. Jesus is reality. And the best definition of reality I know is what you run into when you're wrong. If you say, I believe I can fly, and you jump off the top of a 10-story building, reality is what you hit a few seconds later. Hence the cliche, a dose of when we call something a lie, we mean it doesn't respond or doesn't correspond to reality. I wonder if you could name any unrealities in our world. Things that do not correspond to realities. I wonder if you could name any unrealities like in your friends' lives. Have you ever had that moment where you, somebody's living in something and you just want them to see the truth so bad, but you can't get them to see it? Even in our own lives, we could live out these unrealities. I wonder if there are any things that you live in. Here, here what we see at the top of our text is people who are being saved by an alternative view of reality. That Jesus, not Artemis, is Lord. That Jesus is the true gracious Savior and ruler of the world. These people are being set free from idols that took from them 
and they're being brought into a relationship with the God who died for them. Y'all, here's the thing about idols. We've said this before. In the beginning, they ask for almost nothing, and they promise you everything. But in the end, they ask of you everything, and they give nothing in return. I wonder if you can think of any things that you've believed, any things that you've acted out. Because here's the thing. The lies that we think are one thing. It's the lies that we live that destroy us. How how do we recognize those things? Those are the things that we walk in and we think they're going to bring us life, but they don't, right? It's like all of a sudden you're like that person who's like, I can fly and jumps off the building. You're, You're met with the reality that this thing is not what you thought it was you know, Paul was waging a war of ideas, ideas about the truth of the reality of this world. Why? Okay? We live at the mercy of our ideas. Dallas Willard said that. Ideas are powerful. Think about it. Have you ever believed something that was destructive? Like maybe something small. A lot of us do this when we're young. And we believe something like this. What I eat doesn't matter. Anybody? And then as we age, we're met with reality. (laughs) The reality of our waistlines or whatever it happens to be. We find out that this is a lie. I cannot eat whatever I want. Some things are bad for me. Y'all, the most dangerous lies are the ones that we live out. These lies become a part of our daily life. They become what we'll call mental maps, okay? All of us... I hope, if, if you've worked at a job more than like a week, <laughs> I hope you don't have to go into Google Maps and get directions to get there, right? We learn. Any, any musicians in here? Okay. The first time you pick up a guitar or whatever, it's just like a foreign language, right? But then over time, it gets easier and easier. And then you can play an E chord. You don't even think about it. You can strum through chords. You can play through patterns, whatever. That's called a mental map. This is what enables us to do things. Now, just like it helps us do things, it also keeps us in destructive patterns. Because once you do something enough times, your brain is trained to respond to stimulus and to do those things, right? So I was talking to a guy before first service. He recently relapsed. Why? Because in his brain, he has mental maps for addiction and destructive behavior. And so what he has to do is he has to uncover those maps. He has to figure out those things that his biology says this will satisfy you, but reality has shown him this will destroy you. This is what lies do. Yo, when these things are threatened... The lies that we live and the lies that we love, these sins, we begin to defend them. We fight for them. We don't want help with them. We stiff arm people. We don't tell the truth about them. But the reality is they are killing us. And these lies are precisely what Jesus came to set us free from. Point number one, and we're going to jump into the text. Jesus disrupts the lies of our world. Acts 19, 18 through 19, it says, many of those who believe now came to openly confess what they had done. A number who have practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, y'all, the value of the item destroyed was 50,000 pieces of silver, okay? Does anybody remember how many pieces of silver Christ was betrayed for? That was a lot. 50,000, y'all, this is millions of dollars of just things that are destroyed. This is millions of dollars that are taken out of the economy, okay? This is a massive thing that has happened. This has literally disrupted the economy of the city to the point where people who are in this business are freaking out because they're afraid it's gonna destroy their business. Millions of dollars were burnt, okay? And that's what we're gonna do next week. We're gonna have you guys bring in your idols, your Dr. Dre CDs or whatever. <laughs> Callie told me not to say it. And I'm saying it. It was funny to me. Your Dre CDs or whatever. Yo, I'm, I'm joking, right? But there are some things we should burn, right? Like for me, when I was getting free from drug addiction, I literally had to burn a few things. Like, have <laughs> uh, y'all seen the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Tell me you have a drug past without telling me you have a drug past, okay? <laughs> I had a poster, this Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas poster, and I just had all these ties back to my previous life, and y'all, it took me time to untangle these things, but at some point I realized that, and y'all, I went old school, like Pentecostal, I went out in the yard, and I set that thing on fire, okay? <laughs> I went Old Testament on this thing. Y'all, the movement of the gospel draws people to a more powerful life source that overtakes and replaces the lie or the other thing that we were living in. It draws us to the life that we're promised in Jesus, where our old sources took from us, our, our new source in Jesus gives to us. I have a question for you. We, we joke about burning the stuff but is there anything in your life that you actually need to burn? Like, is there anything that, that, that gives you a path back to a previous lifestyle that you need to burn? You know, for, for these people, that they taste and they see, Psalm 34, verse eight, they taste and they see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Here's what they see, that Jesus is the ultimate source of life. He is the true bread, that when we eat from him, he actually satisfies our deepest hungers. He, he's the true spring of life. He's true well of life, that when we drink from him, we don't thirst for other things. I wonder for you, like when you first met Jesus, for me, I was coming out of drug addiction. And so what I was actually living for was trying to find peace and soul satisfaction in opiates, right? Or sex or whatever it was. But here's the reality of what was happening. When I would do those things, I would go to those sources of peace. When I would wake up in the morning, I was miserable again. And there were diminishing returns. The deeper I went into the addiction, the deeper I went into misery. I was searching for soul satisfaction. But when I met Jesus, I received a peace that lasted more than one night. I received a peace that stayed with me, that sustained me. I met the bread of life, the one who springs of water well from his heart and satisfy us. 
Yo, this is what's happened in these texts. These people have met the ultimate source of reality and life, and once they taste it, they don't want to go back to their old sources, so much so that they burn the option to go back. They burn the ships. There's no path back. There's no route back to idolatry. They burn them. So I'm going to ask the question again. Have you burned the ships? Have you burned the path back to some of these activities and some of these things that are killing you? Again, I'm not saying burn your Dre CDs, although maybe. (laughs) Amen. I get it. But our hearts bend towards the wrong things. Has anyone found this? We're attracted to things that actually destroy us. We have to set up guards in our lives for our eyes, right? Through accountability software, for activities. Is there anyone who has access to everything you do? I remember one time I was sharing with a friend that Callie and I share our location services with each other. I'm like, that's so controlling. I was like, that's freedom, my friend. I don't have secrets. For our spending, do we have people who can ask you questions or challenge you on your spending? For our relationships, do you have advisors that you submit your relationship decisions to? Have you burned the ships? Here's what you'll find through life, and this is the good news of the gospel. My goal is that I'm better when I'm 40 than I am at 33. Amen? Amen. That I'm better at 50 than I was at 40. For some of you guys, you're like, I'm 70. Better at 80 than you are right now. Because here's the lie that the world tells us, that your best days are behind you. That youth is the ultimate form of beauty. But Jesus destroys this unreality. Jesus shows us that the more we walk with him, the more we become like him. The scripture says that in our old age, we would still be green and still be fruitful. You do not find that ideology outside of the person of Jesus. And what he promises us, y'all, this is the good news, is that as we walk with him, we will progressively and daily become more like him. And here's what I'll tell you. If you commit to his path, you commit to the way of Jesus, You will look up in 10 years and you will not recognize yourself. Lies that you easily bought into, things you couldn't imagine laying down through the power and the glory of Christ, the power of his ideas, the power of his truth about reality will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here's where we encounter problems. When people are set free, and we've seen this theme before, There is social and economic disruption. Strongholds always have a price tag, and when you have strongholds, someone else profits, and it's never you. If our prison system went down, Fitz tells me this all the time, we would have economic collapse because there are so many things that are built in the economy of millions of our citizens being imprisoned. If we deal with the sin issues that lead to that, we would have economic problems. Amen? 
Someone always profits off of strongholds. This is one of the reasons why we've got to break free because it's not you who profits. Remember this, the gospel is disruptive and if it's not disruptive, it's probably not the gospel. Point one, Jesus disrupts the lies of our world. Point two, these gracious disruptions often elicit a violent response. Acts 19, 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, and a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, we have received a good income from this business. And then he goes on to outline how Paul has convinced people that these idols made with human hands are no gods at all. And then says what's going to happen is, this is interesting, we talked about this last week, that Artemis will be robbed of her glory. You know, something that's lost on us in our world, because we're so surrounded by it, so ubiquitous for us, is the phrase, Jesus is Lord, has enormous implications. Do you know what Caesar's slogan was, his political campaign? Caesar is Lord. Lord. So when they would declare Jesus is Lord, what they were saying is that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It's a powerful idea. Coming in and saying Jesus is Lord, even if they weren't attacking Artemis directly, indirectly says Jesus is Lord and Artemis is not. Y'all, Here's something I've come to find, a truism, when it comes to authority and truth. Time tells the truth. Can you all say that with me? Time tells the truth. When it comes to someone's character, you're trying to figure out who someone is. Wait and see. Time tells the truth. When it comes to a ministry, you're trying to figure out, hey, can I get behind this or whatever? Give it time. Wait and see because time tells the truth. When you're lied about or your character is defamed, wait and see. Your fruit will speak for you because time tells the truth. When someone gets promoted over you and you're positive, you should have gotten that promotion. Work hard, be faithful. Why? Because time will tell the truth. Whether you should have gotten it or you shouldn't have, you're going to find reality at some point. Some of us can't accept that reality. So we just go from job to job to job thinking our bosses are the problem. That's for another sermon. Our value economy is immediacy. What we most value in our society is the immediate. But God is oftenly incredibly and frustratingly patient. Chris Morton said this. He says, Acts tells the story about how in a world of temples and empires, a few of Jesus' earlier followers spread the good news that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. They didn't do it by tearing down temples or plotting coups. It's much more simple 
and perhaps more boring. They established little communities, much like extended families. Because of their new Lord Jesus, these new families played by different rules. Slaves were valued as free men. Women were valued as men. Economies built by the Demetriuses of the world, which traded expensive idols for spiritual hope, were replaced by a shared economy where the poor and the rich took care of each other. Are you frustrated by the state of affairs? Time tells the truth. One of the ways that we can be the most subversive in our world is by entering into deep, interconnected community, by sitting at the table together, by coming in the living rooms together and radically loving each other like Jesus loved. If we fight battles the way the world fight battles, we will lose the battles in the same way the world loses the battles. You know, it's interesting. If you go to modern-day Turkey and you come to the ruins of Ephesus where this was, you're going to see the it's been flattened, the, the temple of Artemis, because in fact, Jesus is greater than Artemis. But what you're also going to see is the Basilica of St. John that was built in the 6th century, which is also in ruins. Why? Because our buildings and our structures don't last, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. And what he builds and what he does and where he is Lord and ground that he takes is his. We have to fight differently. If you're frustrated by the things, the way, way that things are, what I want to say here is the best thing you can do is not campaign, although perhaps maybe that's your call. But I want to ask you, if you're involved in that, are you equally or greater involved in a deep, interconnected spiritual community? Because what we see is we see revival take place in this city because of the way that people are loving each other, the way people are experiencing that love, the life people are coming to find in Jesus. And then they're going out and they're telling others something called evangelism. Here's what, here's what happens. This revolution starts. Artemis is replaced by Christ. And it comes to pass, great was Artemis of the Ephesians. And we now can emphatically declare as we didn't worship, great is Jesus of Nazareth. Here's, what's ha here's what happens and where the violence comes in. These people who don't respond to Jesus' gracious call bear down on their strongholds and they fight to keep them. They're living in this subhuman reality because real quick, let's dive deep into that. Have you ever said, I'm only human? You made a mistake? The word says that God created human beings in his what? In his image. So when we actually actively live out these lies and these sins, we're not becoming more human, we're becoming less human. But when we learn to live in reality, 
We walk in what God has designed for us to walk in, the fullness of humanity. So these people are living in this subhuman unreality, and this fertility goddess is actually a leech that's feeding off of people's innocence and worldview and is robbing them of life. But what you see is these people fight for their captors. What I want you to notice in point three, and this is going to be a brief point, and then we're going to head towards the close. Point one, Jesus sets us free from the lies. Point two, he disrupts them. This gracious disruption is often elicit a violent response. Point three, this response is often not rooted in reality. Okay, let's, let's jump into this. Acts 19. 28 through 34. Y'all still with me? Okay. Verse 28. We're going to kind of skim through this. When they heard this, they were furious. They heard about what was happening with the idols and the glory. And they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The assembly was in confusion. Notice that. They were confused. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, but when they realized he was a Jew, yo, they weren't mad at the Jews. <laughs> they were mad at the Christians, right? But they just lumped it all together. They didn't know what was going on. There was mass confusion. When they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. One writer said, in final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is to shout itself hoarse. Here's what I want to submit to you. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. When you encounter a movement that's marked by confusion and anger, we have to ask ourselves, who's the author of confusion? But if you go back and you look at genuine moves of God, it's marked by humility. It's marked by graciousness. It's marked by a counter way of living. And it makes enormous impact in the communities. Y'all, rage and confusion will pass. Why? Because time tells the truth. And so when we root ourselves to movements, we have to look at what's underneath them, and sometimes we have to wait and see. What happened is this movement came up, this violence came up, these accusations came up that didn't make any sense. But here's the reality, guys. Historically, when it comes to Christians, I'm speaking specifically on opposition to faith, this is generally the way it goes. We've lived in a time of unprecedented peace, right, for Christians. Like, and don't worry, I'm not going to be like, hey, next year we're all going to be in prison for what we believe. Who's with me? <laughs> you know? But at some point, history tells us that there will be opposition to our faith. Here's what I want to give to you. It's my last point. We're going to land the plane. This violence can be dispelled. It won't always be, but it can be dispelled by our godly living. Acts 19, verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the garden of the temple 
the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they neither robbed the temple nor blasphemed our goddess. You know, they were truly subversive. People's hearts were changed. People's views were changed, and it disrupts the city. And here's the reality. Ultimately, the world may want to kill you, and people will try to destroy you. But here's what history and Scripture tells us. It will ultimately be dispelled by godliness. And history usually remembers saints not as demons, but saints. Because time tells the truth. They didn't have a campaign. They worshiped Jesus. Their lives were changed. And the fruit of their lives was seen. This was their movement. It was that simple. They worshiped. They burned the ships. And people saw them living into this reality. They saw them fleeing their captors. And they saw true life in them. And people said, I want that. How do you gather people in a desert? You dig a well and people will come drink. Yo, we live in a spiritual desert. And I believe that God has called churches to be an oasis of hope. But how do we do this? Where does it start? Everyone say this with me. It starts with me. We've got to be the change we want to see. So I'm going to ask you the question again. We asked a few minutes ago. Is there anywhere where you need to burn the way back? Where there's been an area where you've known, like, I'm living into this lie. I'm living into this unreality. I'm having a hard time killing it. And maybe you need to go Old Testament on this thing. Or maybe you just simply need to bring it to someone. Put some systems in your life. Put some things in place. You know, I know we, we've been up into some heady stuff, but I want to bring it down. I want to get practical. Are there any lies you've been living out? And how can you tell? By the fruit it produces in your soul. Is there anything you've been doing or living in that is just bankrupting your soul? You know, for some of us in here, here's what I know. You've been living your whole life that way. And, and you may be at that gracious moment where you're so worn down and you're so worn out and you're so hungry, you might try something else. Here's what I want to submit to you. That's what Jesus came for. He came to live into the truth, a life we could never live on our own. He died a criminal's death that we deserved. He rose from the dead and he offered to fill us with his Holy Spirit so that we could battle the lies that we live and the lies in our world, that we could bring transformation to our world. We could live a life of meaning and hope and purpose. And when our life of purpose is through, we get to reign as kings and priests forever with Jesus. There's just not another worldview that I've seen that can offer that kind of hope. And so what I want to do is I want to take a few moments here. I'm just going to ask you a few questions and we're going to go into a time of prayer. 
Have you dropped your idols and and, and run to Jesus? Have you tasted and seen, like truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good in a way that nothing else can satisfy? Have you seen that he can satisfy your deepest desires? He can quell your deepest fears and he can heal your deepest shame. This is not so much about Paul. This is about what Jesus is doing through Paul. And the truth is that he can do the same thing in you. So two questions. Is there anything God's speaking to you? Anything God's highlighting for you? And if he is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Let's go into a time of prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's just take a moment, guys, and reflect. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years or like three minutes. Is there anything in your life that's just robbing you? If that's you, and actually, I'd like to do this all across the room. If all of us could, just pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you can do what you say you can do. That you can satisfy me. That you can free me. And you can lead me into a better way. I want to walk with you into the fullness of life everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review. Things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at, at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.